Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Rich Harvey, who's the CEO and founder of Property Buyer. He's also the president of the Real Estate Buyers Agents Association and was one of Channel 9 stars on Buying Blind. We have a chat to Rich about how he became a property investing expert, how he overcame some headwinds in his own property investing journey to rebuild his portfolio, and he gives some great advice around the strategy and the goal setting for property investing, and of course, some information on the markets that he's looking at at the moment and how to find growth markets that are underpinned by positive yields as well. It's a fantastic interview with Rich and one that I think that you'll really enjoy. So here's Rich. Rich Harvey, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Great to be here. Interview I've been looking forward to uh, for a while, Rich. Your um, reputation precedes you. Your website looks like uh, one of those wine bottles. You know, it's covered in those gold label stars <laughs> and all this sort of stuff. Only it's not garbage like the wine industry sort of does. Can you just kick us off though with who you are and what you specialize in? Sure. Mike, um, I act as a buyer's agent, which means that I don't sell property. I purely help people on the buying side and act as their independent representative to help them choose the right property. Um, I'm the CEO of propertybuyer.com.au, which I've been running for just over 17 years. Um, and uh, I'm also the president of the Buyer's Agent Association of Australia, uh, REBA, and uh, also the chairman of the Buyer's Agent Chapter for the Real Estate Institute of New South Wales. So, I've got running my own business, plus I've got two voluntary roles helping to improve professionalism. Yeah, in the well, I mean that's well. fantastic. You're obviously a glutton for for punishment, but uh, you 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 believe yeah. in the work that those uh, institutions are doing, obviously. Oh, absolutely, I think it's just it's one way I can contribute back to to the industry that's been good to me, and I think it's really important. I mean, um, just as a side issue, I think a lot of people um, come into the real estate game and. Within five days, you can do your real estate certificate and be starting to sell million-dollar homes or buying million-dollar homes. But I think that's a completely inadequate level of experience and education. So we're pushing to have the apprentice scheme brought back in where you need to work under a full licensee for a minimum of two years before you can act uh, strategically for buyers or sellers. So we're really trying to push for improved standards. Uh, that's a very, very good thing, Rich. Can you give us a bit of dirt on, on young Rich? What were the posters on the bedroom wall growing up? Uh, well, actually, I uh, was really into nature. I wanted to be a carpenter or a, a park ranger when I was growing up. You know, I love bushwalking and love the, the natural world and uh, always like people like David Attenborough. Um, so I actually didn't have a great desire when I was in my teenage years to get into property. Um, you know, my dad was a, uh, was a psychologist and um, marriage counsellor and uh, I didn't really have any sort of close friends or relatives that were, were right into property. So it was kind of an interesting uh, fact that I've ended up in the property game. Um, but yeah, when I was a teenager, I kind of going through school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Like a lot of people at school, I kind of, uh, I knew I wanted to do well. Um, I knew I wanted to, uh, to have the ability to, to perform and, and contribute to society, but I didn't have any specific, you know, you know, five point plan that I wanted to end up as a buyer's agent. It just, um, happened that I, I really fell into that niche because of a, a so, number so of So, can you let us know how, how you got started with property and, and also what your first investment was? Yeah, well, I, I studied um, economics at university. Uh, when I finished the HSC, I, uh, I applied and got into Macquarie University and did a Bachelor of Economics and um, uh, had a, a part-time business mowing lawns on the side. So I had Richard's Total TLC <laughs> Garden Care Service and uh, that was a bit of um, Total Lawn and Garden Care Service. And I enjoyed the outdoors doing that. That got me through uni, kept me afloat with my car and all that. 
and then um, and then uh, I worked uh, after that for the Minister for Transport, um, and then at the same time, about a year later, I went back to uni and did a master's degree. And because uh, like there were so many graduates coming out of uni, I didn't really have a competitive edge, so. I went Latin for punishment and uh, went and did my master's, and that was hard work. I'll never forget walking out of the last exam, and I think it was uh, financial analysis and just oh, shaking my head. Thought I failed and got a B, so I was pretty happy with that. And then, uh, yeah, then really got into into a role as an economist in government for a couple of years, and uh, that's really how I did it. But I think for me it was, um, as I was working in government, I got pretty frustrated. I was working on a lot of environmental policy. Um, I was actually an environmental economist and uh, was quite green in the way that I approached things. And I worked for the EPA, Environment Protection Authority, and helped them create or put values on the environment so we could help save the environment. And I worked on a lot of Sydney's water pollution, air pollution controls, and uh, we did a lot of good work helping to improve those things. Um, but I found that policy was very frustrating, very slow moving. And um, when I was working in government, I started to invest in property, uh, did a lot of property courses and uh, started to realise that I could actually make more money outside of my day job doing property investments uh, strategically than I could in my normal day job. So um, my first my first property was um, my actually my home. Um, I bought a property in Pennant Hills and uh, it was a very large block of land, just over a thousand square metres, had an old um, you know, post-war uh, home on it, 1940s or 1950s type home on it. Um, lots of issues with it, but uh, yeah, it was able to buy that, do a renovation on it and actually yeah. subdivide that. And it was that act of subdivide that actually got me really excited about how property works because we effectively got a free block of land, as I see it, to build on at the back. And, uh, and that's what created a lot of equity for us to launch ourselves into the property investment uh, process. So, um, but mind you, that subdivision was very painful. It actually took, it was one of the longest oh, ever the with Hornsby Council, oh, wow. 526 days. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The local paper did an article on us saying we were celebrating, but uh, we'd almost given up at one point. Um, but no, you have to battle with council to get, get get it through. We finally got it through. We built a house and we had our kids there and uh, it, was, it was fantastic. Yeah, wow. That's what launched us onto uh, the property you are today after starting your business and, you know, selling the, the TLC lawn care. It's a, it's quite an interesting uh, entrepreneurial journey that you've got. <laughs> um, I, I'm interested in, 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 in yeah. obviously, you're, a, you're an educated person, Masters of Economics, puts you in a good place to, to analyse property markets, of course. A, a lot of property commentators don't appear to have that tertiary sort of education. Do you, do you think that's a bit of a, an issue? Has that sort of served you, uh, has it served you well or, or do you think it's, it's really a meritocracy? Look, I don't think you have to be, um, have a tertiary degree, uh, Mike, to enter the property industry. I certainly think it's given me an advantage uh, over a lot of my competitors and other agents because I can see things from a, a macro and a micro perspective. Um, I think, look, there's some really top agents out there and you've got to have both a combination of street smart um, as well as understanding what's going on in the economy at the same time. So as a property commentator, that's what I do. Like myself and my team, we're at the coalface every day talking to buyers, uh, talking to sellers, talking to agents and getting a feel for what's actually happening on the ground. Um, but within the industry, I think having, having further education is definitely an advantage. Um, I think someone said to me, the best... Uh, investment you can make in yourself is your education, and I still believe that today. Um, I'm encouraging my kids to, to get fully educated uh, as best you can, but uh, it certainly doesn't hold people back. I mean, at the same time, just because you don't have a uni degree, it doesn't mean that uh, you're not able to do certain things or, or put you in a different standing. 
um, there's no sort of hierarchy in my view as to that because I think we all need practical skills these days. I mean, my son's a carpenter, and I think it's fantastic because we need more carpenters, we need more plumbers, we need more tradies. Um, they're all wonderful. You know, everybody has to find their niche in life and, and do their absolute best. We need more carpenters for what we should be doing. Yeah, fantastic. I think that's really good advice. Um, I, I read somewhere that your economist or your economics training was actually sort of a, a little bit of an impediment to you jumping into to property, perhaps maybe a little bit of um, analysis paralysis, but you, you eventually saw the power of, of leverage and, and were converted. Is, is that a true story? Can you run us through that background? Yeah, there? yeah. Well, it comes back to your early question about my first investment. I think, well, after we bought my first home, um, you know, we had a lot of equity and we weren't sure what to do with it. We'd almost, you know, paid down our home diligently, believing that that was the only way to, to sort of, you know, run your finances, to pay your home one off first and then start investing. Um, but if you do that strategy, you're going to miss two or three growth cycles. So um, as an economist, I had spreadsheets for everything. I had a bud family budget, you know, watch how much petrol we consume every week. And it kind of got to the point where when I was doing a property analysis, I kind of got really fearful about debt. You know, because I heard that you shouldn't get into too much debt at the time. But um, I think most people now understand the difference between good debt and bad debt. And um, but even on property, you know, there's there's good debt and bad debt on property. Um, so for me, we we bought our first investment property in Alexandria. We bought a uh, many years ago in the nineties. We bought a two bedroom unit uh, before the market before the um, the market really took off there. And uh, gosh, it was kind of like you know pulling teeth for me. It was like a really difficult process. Thinking, gosh, we're gonna you know, spend 200 and, I can't remember the numbers now, like 220,000 on this two-bedroom unit in Alexandria. I mean, they're worth, you know, eight or nine hundred today. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> just your hindsight. But at the time, it was like a big leap of faith. You know, oh, gosh, you know. But when I actually um, invested in that software program, uh, property investment analysis, and actually broke down the numbers for me and said, okay, so if your interest rate is, you know, at the time, it was 7%. And if your rent is, you know, $400 a week and if your your income is this, then the bottom line number that it spits out is actually going to only cost you $10.50 per week to hold this property. That's on a negative gearing strategy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I worked out uh, over the cost of a year, it might cost me $1,000. But if the capital growth on this property is 7% per annum, which it easily was, then in 10 years' time, you basically double your money and you're going to make two hundred grand. The cost spending a thousand bucks a year, and I went, That's a no brainer. Yeah. Why don't I do this Little again? Um, once I understood that concept, okay, I spend a thousand bucks a year and I make you know one or two hundred grand a year in capital growth, it's just the light bulb went on. Uh, and for me, I bought three properties that year. Um, obviously, I used up all my serviceability fairly quickly, but um, that was just a, a, again a light bulb moment where I saw how. When you leverage safely into the right property, uh, you can do very well. Yeah, wow. And you obviously were doing uh, the investing. You had the, I guess, a fairly um, stable and comfortable government job. Some of the colleagues are ears are pricking up when they're hearing your negative gearing strategy. And and Rich uh, down in, in in cubicle seven is paying no tax. I'm imagining you got swamped at the water cooler. And and was that? I guess a, a bit of a starting point for you in your idea to, to start the business. There's a bit of a theme with people that become good at something and then people are asking them for the tips and they're sort of thinking, I should charge for this. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I wasn't too overt at work. I didn't want to sort of spruik myself, especially in, a, in, a, in that sort of work environment. But there was a few people that, that knew what I was up to and obviously the, um, the HR department, when they looked at my um, group certificate, 
And uh, I, I, at the time, it was called the Section 221D, where you did the tax variation. Now it's a different number. I think it's Section 1515 of the Tax Act. Um, but when they saw that I had no tax, I remember the, the officer saying, Rich, how do you do this? You don't seem to be, you know, you've, you've managed to reduce your tax liability on your payslip to zero. How do you do that? And I said, oh, look, I just invest in quality properties and, you know, I apply for the tax variation. And, and then I said, you just got to be careful where you buy and what you buy and, and how you manage. And, oh, that's fantastic. But how do you do that? So where, should I should I start doing that? And they're asking all sorts of <laughs> questions about that. So it's, it's kind of where it was. And, and uh, you know, at, at lunchtime, I'd go out and do inspections or I'd uh, make calls to agents. And, um, you know, and eventually uh, I just found I was, you know, providing a lot of commentary and, and advice to, to friends and colleagues who were going, Rich, you're really good at analysing property. You're really good at picking the right kind of areas. Um you know, so yeah, why don't you, you know, think about it? So I, I started then um, investing a lot more time in my knowledge, and, uh, and that was really the idea was born that there's really no one at time representing buyers exclusively and giving them independent advice that wasn't tied to commission. Um, so I started to uh, to develop that business idea, and, and that's where it really birthed from. Fantastic. Oh, the other thing I'd say, Mike, is we also went to a lot of financial planners at the time. I was trying to find a really good financial planner who would, who would, you know give a fee for service and not be driven by the, the commission thing. And I just I just interviewed like five or six um, planners and I just couldn't seem to find the right one. All they wanted to do was effectively sell me a product. Yeah. And um, and a lot of those come out of the banking world commission is they're very the planners at the time were, that I that I happened to meet up with, I know some fantastic planners now who we refer clients to, but at the time I, I just found that the planners didn't really listen to my full um, goals and, and uh, objectives. And uh, they certainly weren't property orientated. They were very much share market orientated, not balanced in their approach. So that gave me the other idea is that you, know, you don't necessarily have a one size fits all planner. Um, a planner is there to help you manage your risk, uh, to manage you know, your, your, certainly your life insurance and other types of assets, but they may not be as good on the property front. So that's right. I thought there was a definite opening for a buyer's agency. And that's still a bit of a legacy today, right? There's not a lot of financial planners that completely understand uh, property and there is, I guess, a almost like a disincentive because they're not qualified to, to recommend that as a service. They need to have that arm's length. So it's just a lot easier to go into, you know, equities and uh, managed funds and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think... Um, you know, a lot of the, the planning, the financial planning issue has been really shaken up where, you know, they've just been sitting on a goal line every year and people sort of, uh, they charge them one or two percent of their overall portfolio amount without doing a lot of work. And uh, I think a lot of the planners have had to restructure their whole business around giving a lot more value for the advice they provide yeah. and proving that value. Uh, rather than just selling a commission product to their clients. On the other side of the the spectrum, obviously there's um, there's a there's a lot of choice if you're looking to get into property at the moment. Uh, there's there's buyers agents with a with a long track record such as yourself. There's people popping up uh, all the time. Obviously there are some licensing changes that we really need to sort of protect people and I, and I know that um, you actually had a family member that was stung by an unscrupulous um, property spruker. H- how do you sort of see the state of the market at the moment and, and, and do we still have some of those you know, run to the back of the room, this deal only lasts today sorts of off the plan things? <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't sort of seem to get too many um, dodgy seminars out there but there's still the property spruiking industry is still very much alive and well, Mike. Um, I mean, just recently, the most uh, famous case just came out with Rick Otten, who um, 
uh, his company, We Buy Houses, just been fined $18 million for false and misleading advertising. Um, he used to advertise buy a property for a dollar, um, and he would uh, would sell his courses and uh, and but unfortunately uh, he's he's done the wrong thing and uh, eighty million dollar fine. So he's been banned from being company director I think for life or ten years or something. So there's there's still um, yeah there's still some unscrupulous operators out there. I think ASIC has been good in in closing down a lot of those unscrupulous uh, operators, uh, which is great. Um, one of the issues is that property investment um, as a as a as a product is not fully regulated by ASIC. It's regulated on a state-by-state basis according to the property laws in each state. So there's no sort of national uh, regulation um, uh, that's there. So that, that's difficult. So I think the message for consumers out there is just be very careful uh, what you pay for and what you believe in the headlines. Um, you know, there's, there's other sorts of uh, courses out there that will teach you how to be, you know, perhaps a buyer's agent in five days. Well, it doesn't take five days to be a buyer's agent. It takes years of experience and training. And it's very important to work with reputable firms or reputable people that will show you exactly how to do due diligence, not just how to sign up a client. So, um, and if you're looking to to get any kind of property, my number one advice, and I say this at all the expos that I speak at, where there are a lot of spookers out there, um, when a spruik is selling a property, they're going to be paid a commission by the developer or by the vendor of that property. And often those commissions will be anywhere between, uh, you know, usually anywhere from 2% up to 6% or even 7% on some Brisbane off-the-plan properties. So it's really important that an investor or a consumer ask the question, how are you getting paid for this advice? You know, are there any kickbacks? Um, and it's really important that you, you, if you're taking advice from a spruker, you know exactly what they're getting paid and what their incentivization is in that in that transaction. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, my brother, um, you know, years ago, back in the late 90s, I think, um, fell for the bait, got flown up to the Gold Coast, you know, shown around in a nice white Mercedes with the bloke wearing the, you know, the, the gold chain and the white shoes and all that, and was told, Oh, you know, Phil, you've got to buy this property. It won't be here on Monday. And they signed on the spot. And um, anyway, they regretted buying it when they got back to Sydney, but couldn't get out of it. Um, and then he went and sold it just before the market took off. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but everything wrong with that one. But look, he didn't lose too much money. He probably lost 10 grand or something. So it wasn't too bad. But I think those sort of, you know, that sense of urgency where you've got to sign up on the spot um, to, uh, or you're going to miss out, that those, I think those days are well and truly over. Yeah. So, and you've had some, some headwinds yourself in terms of, I guess, um, being on the receiving, receiving end of, of uh, unscrupulous practices with, um, I know you sort of invested in a, in a project, I think it was, that didn't, didn't really come, uh, come to fruition. I wanted to ask you about that, but um, especially if we're being a bit more sort of glass half fill, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't choose this for yourself, but you've actually been able to build a portfolio twice through necessity, right? So I'm, I'm yeah, quite interested in, um, I mean, and you've done it twice successfully, so I'm quite interested in what you tweaked and, and what you changed. Can, can you run us through um, that, that sort of process and that, and that, uh, that part of your life? Yeah, it looks a little bit painful to talk about this knife in some way. I feel actually really, (laughs) I feel quite (laughs) terrible like I'm twisting the knife, which is... No, that's right. You're a a good interviewer. You've (laughs) got to ask the hard questions because that's where people learn the most. And I think that's the thing in life. I think the you've always got to look at the blessing on the other side of the difficulty. And I think a lot of people lose hope when they they hit hard times. Um, But there is always hope. You've always got to have a message to to people that there is another side. You'll get through 
And I think for me, obviously, losing money was a really difficult thing. Actually, it's been proven in economics, Mike, that people value losses more than they value gains. In other words, people feel more pain from a loss than they do from a benefit. Uh, It's actually a proven empirical study. But but in terms of my own position, yeah, look, I I was happily going along, buying a bunch of properties, and then I... um, I actually went to work for a, a small-time developer, and uh, and this developer, uh, I, I, you know, um, unwisely invested around about eighty percent of my net worth in these various projects with this developer, and I didn't fully understand uh, how mezzanine loans right. worked, and uh, fully understand them now, and uh, you've got to be extremely careful with mezzanine loans. What mezzanine loans are is it's an unsecured loan. Uh, when a developer builds a project, they typically get first um, secured first mortgage funding from a bank or a major lender, and they'll lend them up to, say, 60% or 50% of the hard costs. Then the developer needs extra money, and that's called mezzanine or top-up money, and they'll give a much higher percentage rate on that money for a shorter-term loan period, so one to two years. And they'll pay interest rates of anywhere from, say, 12%, even up to 20% per annum on that money because they've got it for a short period of time to complete a project. So anyway, this developer I worked with, uh, he, um, he he took my money happily, invested in some projects, uh, but he actually never completed them. And uh, over a period of three years, um, he actually went into liquidation and unfortunately we, uh, we lost our money, all our money. So uh, it was a very difficult and very painful process, um, very difficult for my wife and I, but uh, we got through. Uh, we obviously had to sell uh, most of our properties at that time to to fund the losses and uh, get back on our feet. Um, but we did. We've still got a healthy, happy family, and uh, and that's the main thing that counts in this game because you know money is something that comes and goes. Um, you've got to obviously manage it well. But it was a, a very difficult lesson to learn. So obviously, I wrote down a stack of lessons I learned, and one is that if you give security to someone, make sure that you don't just have strings attached, you have chains attached to that loan so you can get it back if something goes wrong. So I didn't have adequate security on those funds when I loaned them out. Um, And also the types of projects we invested in, they're actually quite good projects in good blue chip areas, but the management um, of those projects was very poor. Uh, They weren't structured and and the person I invested with uh, was not a good character. So that was a a difficult process. So the thing for me is... um, I've had to pick up uh, with the remaining uh, properties I have, been able to pick up uh, the ball and run with it again, use that small amount of equity and start investing in even better quality properties uh, to go again. So, yeah, look, I mean, having two runs at it, certainly not something I do by choice again, um, but again, you've got to just get up, get on your bike and, and ride hard. And, and don't try to, I think people who, who've made losses, Mike, they often try to fast track the recovery path. Um, a bit like people in the share market, if they've had a loss, they'll go, oh, you know what? Or the I'm, casino, I'll right? Down. Or, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, I've got a big loss on red, now I'll go on black, you know? So I think you just, you know, you can actually make money just by stepping back for a little bit and then being really judicious in when you apply your buying strategy. So, yeah, we'll talk about that in, in well, more Richard, a moment. Well, Richard, I think too, it's, I think. firstly, mm-hmm. thank you very much for, for sharing that. And I was a bit sort of awkward in asking you that, that question. I know that's probably quite some time ago now, but um, it's 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 something that I think the listeners really 
relate to because people such as yourself with you know successful portfolios this is, can sometimes seem a little bit out of reach but um, we're all human after all and and I'm really interested in the psychological phenomenon you sort of see it in uh, in the Olympics from time to time people fall over in the 800 meters and they go from the back of the pack to the front because something re-energizes yep. them the injustice of it just puts this fire in the belly yes um Let's talk about the fire that was in your belly then and, and what you actually did, um, what, what sort of changes you made when you were building that uh, 2.0 portfolio. Yeah, I think for me it was um, getting the right, firstly getting the right finance structure, so understanding how to get multiple loans and that was working with really good finance brokers um, and often not taking no for an answer. So I knew I could afford to buy another property um, and I would squeeze every bit of available equity that I had in my portfolio. So for me, it was a, a matter of um, every property that I buy needs to get me closer to my goal of financial independence. So it, it was about being um, ruthless about dismissing properties that don't fit my criteria um, and going after the ones hard that do fit my criteria. And, and it's obviously setting a limit on what you, you buy, you, you pay for them, uh, and knowing exactly what the rent returns are going to be, crunching the numbers. Uh, and moving forward. So for me, it was about getting momentum back. Um, I mean, the wind gets knocked out of your sails, that's for sure, but you've got to pick yourself up and go, you know what, I've made mistakes. I can't control everything that happens to me in life. I've got to move forward. So, you know, building a second portfolio was um, a difficult process, but it was, was good to get back into the game and go, you know what, I'm going to buy better quality properties. I'm going to work out a strategy to hold them. But also, uh, just because you're buying properties doesn't mean you don't sell the odd one. You know, you've got to keep looking and evaluating your portfolio and I've recently sold a couple of properties um, that weren't performing as well as I liked because I know I can make better money elsewhere and also getting cashed up for, for right now while the market's uh, soft, um, I'm getting cashed up again to go um, and buy some more properties next year. Uh, particularly well, while the a lot of people soft. such as yourself mm. will sort of say, you know, don't get too trigger happy. Investing is a long-term investment. But, but of course, uh, as a realist as well, you realise that that money is maybe serving in a different market at what point are you being impatient and what part are you being sort of strategic yeah i think um if you sort of look at i mentioned the macro factors you've got to look at the macro factors of property as well as the micro and the macro factors i think the next couple of years um it's going to be challenging there's a lot of headwinds for property investors um but for me if a property uh, I can't see that the, the market is really going to, you know, improve dramatically the next 10 years. And I know I can pull, despite the agent's fees for selling and, and changeover costs, if I can assess that they're worthwhile paying, I'll pull money out of a property and buy again. I mean, ideally, you, you can just refinance a property, um, but it is harder to refinance these days. So if you can hold a property for, the, for as many cycles as possible, great. But what I'm saying to, to the listeners is don't be afraid to sell the odd property here or there where you can strategically apply the money in a much better way and uh, knowing that holding, if you were to hold that property, it would be a drag on your serviceability and a drag on on your other goals. That yeah, beautiful. Can, Thanks for clarifying that, Rich. Um, I want to talk to you about your superstardom on Channel 9's Buying Blind. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the show yeah. and, and some of the struggles that, that people are having, which I guess is the, I, I guess the motivation for the show and, and, and maybe some of the, the wins that you've had there? Yeah, look, um, the buying blind experience was fantastic. Um, it was about this time last year I was actually out there in the marketplace trying to buy all the homes for the, for the six couples on the show. Um, just for those that didn't see the show, what the concept of buying blind was, 
where there were six couples that were priced out of the market or, or finding it very difficult to buy their family home. They all had completely different stories and um, they, uh, they came to the TV show with the expectation of buying their home. But what they had to do was give up control of the buying process, give me a brief, sign over and hand out of equity and start over their money. Um, and then I had to go and find the property. And then the next time they saw the property was when I gave them keys to the front door. So they had no say in, in looking at the properties, no feedback loop, no keys to the front door. So they, uh, it was quite an experience. I really enjoyed it. Uh, each of the couples was, was great. Um, I've never met any of them before. Literally, we had a camera on either side of the door and I knock on the door and they film every, filming us uh, meeting for the first time and sitting at the kitchen table and, and getting their brief. And literally within 30 minutes of meeting them, uh, I had to convince them that I was the man for the job to buy them their family home. And they were spending... Um, anywhere from half a million to almost $1.8 million on their own. So it was a big, big ask, big leap of faith for these these couples, I tell you. You're, you're, quite incredible. You're, you're a clever guy, Masters of Economics, property expert, but geez, Rich, I'd still be nervous. Yeah, <laughs> and that was played out, absolutely. So I had to do this moment. Um, I had to ask them, you know, uh, guys, now we get down to business. Are you ready to hand over all your money so I can buy you your family home? And then I walk out of the room and they, they some of them were actually a bit nervous and uh, some of them were really keen to sign and really keen to meet because they'd heard about me. Uh, but others, it took a little bit of convincing, but they all signed. And uh, I uh, then went out and uh, found a bunch of properties uh, to look at. We had a few uh, false starts with some of them. Um, I bought two of them before Christmas last year and then there were other ones I bought at the beginning of this year. Uh, the show went to air in June, July. And... Um, but yeah, they all had different struggles. Like some were a couple of first home buyers, and um, they all pretty much had unrealistic expectations, uh, as you'd expect. I mean, when I met them, the market was still warm and hadn't corrected like it has yeah. now. And um, a lot of them had an option and, and just kept getting disillusioned. And you know, every weekend they were out there looking at properties and just couldn't get into the market and uh, found it very, very difficult. Um, but uh, I think I think uh, one of the best ones for me was uh, Liz and Ali, the uh, couple, first home by a couple with the smallest budget in Melbourne. Um, Ali was a teacher at a Christian school, and um, they really wanted they got three little girls, really wanted to be close to the school, and they only had a budget of five fifty, and it was really hard to find anything that fitted the budget and and the area for their brief. Um, and I said to them, I said, guys, is there any way you can get some more money? And um, they were able to, you know, speak to a relative and rather borrow a little bit more money up to about 600. Anyway, I got them a property just under their budget and um, they were expecting to move into a unit and they'd be training their little kids to, to sleep in one bedroom altogether so they could actually live in a two-bedroom unit. So when we were able to deliver a three-bedroom house, oh, my gosh, you should have seen their reaction. They were just over the moon. So <laughs> that was... Uh, that was a really precious moment and I uh, feel great about that. Um, the other one was uh, Mal and Kristen, another one in Melbourne, and uh, they had moved to Brisbane several years ago, sold out of the Melbourne market, came back and realised they'd really missed the boat and um, they're a bit heartbroken. They couldn't buy into their core suburb. Anyway, um, I found a, a diamond in the rough in Doncaster and uh, it was a pretty old, old-looking house, pretty tired, but it backed onto a park, nice quiet street, um, and they did about a 200k reno, uh, which we did. We had the budget for that. And um, anyway, we completely transformed the house. And uh, they were just, again, over the moon. Um, I remember walking into the house before it was unrenovated and it stunk of cigarette smoke, yellow walls, crappy kitchen. It just looked awful. And the mother, <laughs> the mother came through and she went, 
Oh, you bought the wrong house. You, you definitely bought the wrong house. Oh, <laughs> Anyways, they, they played all that out, all that jeopardy out. But uh, when they took the blindfolds off after the renovation, wow, they were just, again, over the moon. So, yeah, great experience. Over that's, yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. I mean, I, sometimes I, I joke in our office, you know, we're not saving babies. I, I wish I had the, the brains and the scalpel set to, to, to do something a little bit more meaningful. But... Um, that's fantastic. You're actually making a big difference in those lives, and it's clear that that's something that um, that really sort of um, you know presses your your buttons, Rich. So so congratulations on that. Getting getting back to property specifics, we were talking off air about the lollies and 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 veggies, and and I guess what we're 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 trying to get at is that people often do the property investing backwards. They look at what are the the boom areas. Sometimes, hopefully, not the mining towns that are going to get twenty percent growth. Um, you know, houses versus units, the streets, and that sort of stuff. But but don't do the sort of the due diligence stuff in terms of the plan. And you, and you mentioned before about something that serves your criteria and having the exit strategies and and, and all that sort of stuff. Can can you talk us about those? Uh, talk to us about those kind of unsexy parts of property investing that we need to spend a little bit more time on. Yeah, I think I think to start with, um, you know, a lot of people just jump on the internet and think, oh, I'll start doing some research uh, by finding a property in my own backyard in the suburb that's either I live in or it's adjacent to me. And they don't realise that Australia is made up of 15,000 suburbs. So when you're investing in property, you have to be firstly unemotional and secondly very strategic about what you're doing. So I think for me it comes down to before you choose an individual property, it's a four-step process. Number one, you've got to write down your goals, um, and only 3% of the population do this. So once you've defined your goals and objectives, then it works out. It's much easier to work out what property to buy. Um, then you've got to choose a strategy, like a particular property strategy. Is it just buy and hold? Is it buy and renovate? Is it buy land and develop? Um, is it building a duplex? Is it doing a grounding flat? So there's all these different combinations of strategies you can do. Then you've worked out, okay, what strategy works for me? And also in terms of cash flow, do you need to buy a positively cash flow property because your serviceability is challenged or can you go the negative gearing route? So think about those things. And often people need help in deciding which strategy is going to work for them. Then the third thing is then looking for an area uh, that meets those strategies and then finding a property in an individual suburb that, that meets the above. So for me, as I said, um, a lot of people confuse searching and research. So research comes first. It's defining the areas to buy in, and then it's about finding the right property. So to answer your question about the veggies, which I call the area, you know, what areas should you buy in? Um, for me, I like areas that um, have a lot of potential for growth. Um, so I obviously like the cash flow, but the fundamental thing I'm going for is, is capital growth that's underpinned by cash flow. Um, so areas that are being gentrified are really good. And there's, I guess, the three P's of gentrification, which is people, place and property. So when we, we talk about gentrification um, through people, we talk about the demographics. So we talk about more the, uh, the younger generation, the professional generation moving in, the Gen Ys, the Gen Xs that are doing lots of renovations, which means you'll see a lot of tradie youths out the front, a lot of those skip things. Um, you'll, you'll see uh, a lot of the, you know, the, the big kids, uh, sorry, couples without kids or just one or two kids moving into an area and the older generation moving out. Um, in terms of place, you'll see that the council is doing beautification works. Um, they might be doing road upgrades. Um, 
you know, expanding parks and, and recreational facilities. And probably you'll see a, a higher proportion of <clears throat> federation or older style property in the area. So gentrification doesn't happen in places like Penrith in Sydney um, or, or, or Ipswich as such. It's going to happen in the inner, typically inner and middle ring suburbs. Um, but they're the kind of areas that I like to invest in where there's, there's more value-adding uh, going on. In and these areas. can be regional towns as well, right? You can, see, you can have almost like inner rings of regional centres that are, that are seeing this gentrification. Yeah, you can. I, I guess with regional areas, there's probably less of the sort of noticeable gentrification, but like, even places like Newcastle or Wollongong uh, or Geelong, you know, you'll, you'll see pockets of, of that sort of gentrification. But I think to answer your, your fundamental question for your listeners, it's it's about, um, I kind of liken property investment to being as easy as PIE, P-I-E, which is population growth, employment and infrastructure. There are three key drivers that I'm always looking for in areas that I'm investing. Um, so to break that down, population, why? I'm looking for population growth because that drives demand for more housing. If the population is dying, then you're not going to get capital growth and you're not going to get rent pressure. Um, employment is, is fundamental because people uh, you know, on strong wages can afford to buy their own homes, so the owner-occupier market's strong. And secondly, there's a strong rental market because people have got good wages to pay rent. Uh, and thirdly, infrastructure, that's a really nice cream on top because infrastructure means the areas going forward. There's, there's strong investment. There's the multiplier effect from all of that infrastructure investment going on in the area. So they're the three keys. You've, that you've made the, the veggies very palatable. You've skid them with sweet chili sauce or something, Rich. So the, the, the four <laughs> points of your strategy, we're, we're, we're talking um, the goals, the strategy, the area, then the property. We've got the, the three Ps of growth. People, uh, property, and place, and was that correct? Place, the yep. beautiful, the beautification, that sort of uh, thing, yep. mm-hmm. and then uh, pie, population, infrastructure, right. employment. I mean, those um, those things all together should you know should should fairly well cover the main drivers for capital growth, right? Yeah, they're not everything. Um, I mean, I've actually written. Uh, a top 20 criteria report, which people can download from my website on propertybuyer.com.au if they want that. I've got a bunch of other free stuff there, but, um, you know, there's, there's other things that will help to drive capital growth, but it's, it's fundamentally about location. You know, location is just, yeah, you can't underscore that enough. You know, um, some people look at the kitchen bench tops or they look at, you know, uh, type of picket fence out the front. That's just such a cosmetic thing that can be changed in a heartbeat. But once you buy the block of dirt and once you buy the position, you can't move it. So the message to buyers is buy in the right area. That's fundamental. So pick all of the things that are all about location. Fantastic advice, Rich. If we can do our, our shortcut and go straight to the pick and mix lolly section, um, what sort of markets are we talking about at the mm-hmm. moment? You mentioned you're sort of uh, readying yourself for some some peak buying times with the softening of the market. What what areas are looking attractive for yourself at the moment? Uh, well, look, I mean, Sydney and Melbourne have had a really, really good run. So I'm still very pro buying in the metro areas. Um, uh, the long-term growth, uh, I think there's a short window of opportunity really the next six months where you can actually pick up potentially a bargain in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, but a lot of people can't afford, you know, in, in Sydney's price tags about 1.1 million per house and Melbourne's about 890,000. So it's difficult for a lot of buyers to afford that level. 
A more affordable markets that I think have good legs is places like uh, Brisbane. Um, the middle, some of the middle ring suburbs of Brisbane is, is really good. Um, also Newcastle, uh, particularly Newcastle, because I think it's got, um, uh, it's the seventh largest population uh, area of Australia. Um, again, a lot of that gentrification happening in the inner ring of the inner suburbs uh, around Cooks Hill and Hamilton and those areas. Um, also, uh, some other larger regional markets like Geelong, um, Wollongong, um, yeah, we think we think those markets have certainly got what some you, good potential. I want to sort of get your your ideas on where sort of investors are, are falling down. Obviously, the stats are telling us that the majority of investors have one property. The overwhelming majority have one to two. What 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 do you think the reason is? Is it is it we're falling down on on our strategy? Is it the knowledge? Are we are we falling for too many of the lollies? I think a lot of investors get stuck because yeah. they procrastinate, to be honest, Mike. Um, a lot of people just, you know, they, they just get stuck because they just don't know what to do next. They don't have an accountability. Um, there's no one really driving them uh, forward. So I think a lot of investors get stuck um, also because they can't, they can't get loans. Uh, that's a real headwind at the moment. Um, you know, not having the right finance structure, um, not having the right advisor, just trying to do it on their own. Um, uh, I think a lot of investors don't know yep. what they don't know at the end of the day. You know, I think a lot of people, um, if they knew or had more knowledge, um, they'd certainly be able to, to move forward. Um, sometimes they might have a, a lack of equity. They might not have much equity as they had. Um, also, another one is fear. Uh, a lot of investors just are fearful about the market crashing or fearful of, of making the wrong move, uh, maybe fearful of what their family's saying. And my advice is don't let fear hold you back. You know, a lot of investors get stuck on just one or two properties, but the really, you know, strong investors that really get themselves up financially and build a whole portfolio, they know how to buy multiple properties. They know how to recycle their equity. If we can, if we can chuck uh, fear in the bin for a moment and think about a, a case study of, 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 let's say we want to get to a point in life, we've maybe got 20 or 30 years to achieve this, we want to replace our, our income uh, with our investments, let's say we're we're wanting to sort of retire on 100k a year um, passive for our investment. What would be sort of your strategies? What's what's the roadmap for us to get there? Um, the guy, it's like part of my presentation. So if your goal is to like buy uh, have 100k of a positive of positive cash flow, um, let's just work on some really simple numbers. So you're going to need to buy. Uh, you know, four $500,000 properties, which gives you a nest egg of $2 million. So let's say, Mike, you've got $2 million of unencumbered property earning, and I'll just say 5% as a gross yield. That's going to give you the 100K. So how do you, how the heck do you get that $2 million of net unencumbered property? You're actually going to have to buy around $4 million worth of property over a period of 10 to say 20 years. Um, so it's just really starting with the first one. You, know, you buy your first property at 500. You buy your second one a year or two later, or if you can afford to buy two of them, one, you're great. But you gradually chip away. And let's say you end up with eight properties at 500k each. This is, again, very simplistic. Over time, you start selling down some of those properties, those original properties that have grown the most in value. And then you pay off the debts of the earlier ones. So that over again, let's say at the end of 20 years, you sell down four, you keep four, you've got your two million bucks worth, which is probably going to have increased in value. It might even be worth two and a half million now and giving you a slightly higher yearly cash flow of 100K. 
So I, I'm really interested. If I can't visual, I can't draw it for you on the screen, but uh, <laughs> you can just visualise. You know, gradually buying a property every few years, um, and over that period of 20 years, you know, buying multiple properties and then selling People some down. People have to, to, to check you out at the Property Buyers Expo. I'm sure you'll be running through this sort of stuff perpetually. But I mean, that that's a, a fantastic overview of, of of how strategically you would need to get there. Obviously, there's a there's a lot of um, steps along the way. But from a from a macro point of view, we don't have to complicate it much more than that, do we? No, it's pretty simple. I think once you start buying one property, you know, and get some leverage, the key is to buy, as I said, properties that, that push you forward towards your goal, don't detract you from your goal. You don't want to buy a, a money-sucking property that takes away all your certain state properties. You're going to buy some that are going to be stronger growth properties and maybe a couple that will be you know, slightly higher positive cash flow properties that help keep support uh, other properties in your portfolio. And I've got to ask you the question, Rich. Obviously, we've we've seen the market softening with the uh, the intervention from APRA. We've got uh, an election coming up. I think technically has to be before the 18th of May. We've got an early budget where the government presumably says, "Look how good we are. We've done a service, uh, uh, a surplus. So so vote for us." Um, Obviously, the, the, the impact of a, a changing government is somewhat sort of priced into markets, but w- what impact do you think that the election will have on property um, with, with, with property the way it is at the moment? Oh, look, like elections always have a dampening effect on sentiment and, and consumer confidence, unfortunately. People tend to sit on their hands and do nothing. Um, but from my perspective, whenever that happens, I go, again, great buying opportunity. When there's less competition in the market, and if you're buying in property markets that have, you know, continue to have strong fundamental growth drivers, it's a chance for you to beat your competition. It's a chance for you to get in there. So, you know, I mean, obviously the big one is Labor's proposing is to remove negative gearing on, on existing property, but retain it for brand new property. Um, I think that'll be a perverse incentive uh, for brand new property. Um, I think, unfortunately, the property sprinklers will have a field day with that policy. Um, I think it's uh, an ill-advised policy as well because it's it's not supporting. Um, it's not a fair thing to make a distinction about how negative gearing should work. Um, but overall, I think it, yeah, it'll have a negative sentiment, a dampening sentiment on the market. But again, we'll get through. Um, despite what you know, despite what the markets and what the government does, um, you know, property will continue to to go up and down with the cycle. Um, but my advice is buy when there's less competition. And, uh, and hang on and ride the, you heard ride the here first, folks. Rich Harvey is still buying. Uh, the the world's not ending, <laughs> and uh, he's he's going counter cyclical on this one. And uh... well, the other thing, I, the other thing I'd say, Mike, is is that um, I think it was sort of, I meant to mention earlier. Just looking long term into the future. I mean, um, Finder uh, did a survey of what a house could cost in the year twenty fifty. Um, so we're looking, you know, thirty two years ahead. And if we look at a, a sort of a, an average rate of growth of say six or seven percent for Sydney and Melbourne over the next thirty odd years, do you know how much a, a property's average house is going to cost? I'm to be Sydney terrified, but I can't do the maths. Rich, help us out. Okay. Well, here's the shock. Here's the shock factor for you. In Sydney, in the year 2050, based on a on a six percent, six point four percent growth rate, Sydney's median house price will be six point four million dollars. And Melbourne's price will be six point zero million dollars. So, so my, like, I mean, obviously, twenty years ago, who would have thought that Sydney's median house would be one point one? I remember people one, saying you know? that it would never go above a million because psychologically, it's just crazy. We can't get our head around it. 
Well, it's like playing Monopoly now. I mean, you just play Monopoly with the new new sets and you talk, you know, land on Mayfair and all that. It's the same thing, but in real life, right? And that's why hopefully this will motivate your listeners to take action here because people go, how the hell can I afford to live and how are my kids going to afford to live in Sydney, Melbourne or Brisbane? Well, be part of the market, you know, don't throw stones at it. Work how to get safely into the market and the market will look after you. That's fantastic advice, Rich. Um, How do people get in contact with you if they want to see some more of your content or or have a chat? Yeah, great. We've got a whole stack of stuff. So firstly, my website, uh, propertybuyer.com.au. We have a whole stack of information. I I write uh, a couple of blogs every month, which has got some great insights and tips. Um, You can uh, send us an email to info at propertybuyer.com.au. Uh, give us a call. Our phone number is one three hundred six double five six one five, or just come along and, and sign up for my monthly newsletter. I'm actually sending out one today um, about buying uh, buying in the in the softer market. So encourage you to uh, to get on board. A lot of great advice, and we'd certainly love to help anyone awesome. on their buying and Rich, journey. Just to um, um, just to drop us off, Rich. If there's one uh, piece of advice that you could impart to, to property investors, what would that be? Get educated and start early. Um, and get get the right team around you. I think um, trying to do a DIY approach to property investment doesn't work. Um, there's a number of people you need on your team. So you need a finance broker, you need a good solicitor, good building inspector, a good broker, and good buyer's agent. And get that team around you, and um, and they'll look Thanks after you. Thanks very much, Rich. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate it.